If you have your New Testament, so let's look at Luke 19. I'm going to start with Luke 19. Um, so the, the, just as a refresher, the, the premise of this class is to, at least as I'm teaching it, <laughs> now it's been, it's been a lot of fun teaching with Randall. Uh, we have slightly different teaching styles, if you haven't noticed, um, but I think that's really good. Um, the premise of this class is that there are no accidents in the Incarnation. So the Incarnation is one of the central tenets of Christianity, right? You have Incarnation Resurrection. So God becomes a human to show humans how to become more like the God that He intended us to be. Uh, the language we would use in orthodoxy is the, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So there are no accidents in the Incarnation. So the fact that God chose Nazareth was not just like, you know, God and the angels were spinning the globe around and he lost, so he had to go to Nazareth. But that there was an intentional movement all throughout the story of Israel through the first century, even after 400 years of apparent silence, what we call the intertestamental period, and that Nazareth is intricately connected to the kind of God who runs this whole universe. So Jesus becomes this carpenter, rabbi, prophet, who operates out of Nazareth and then that part of Galilee. Um, and everything about his life is supposed to teach us something about the God who created the world. So we're going to turn our focus uh, again towards the great city, arguably the greatest city in the world, Jerusalem. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have been to Jerusalem? How many of you have actually been to Jerusalem? Okay, just... All right. Um, I would, if I were you, again, this is one place where Randall and I differ. I would, uh, I'm totally using guilt to try and get you guys to go to Israel. I'll use any means necessary to get you in the water, literally and metaphorically. I think you need to add it to your bucket list. If you haven't been to Jerusalem, uh, I like Paris. It's not as great as Jerusalem. I love London. I like Glasgow. Um, but Jerusalem is just... How about Novosibir? Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, Siberia, not on my top ten list. We, we went to Siberia a couple years ago together. And Randall criticized the communists the whole time, and we still survived. <laughs> um, so you need to add it to your bucket list. So what I'm going to do this morning is just kind of tell you about my experience in Jerusalem. And then, Randall, you're going to do Jerusalem again next week, right? Two weeks. Two, two weeks. Oh, so this is the first. Okay. I should pay attention to your emails more closely. Sorry. Okay, Luke 19. This is a pivotal moment in the story of Jesus. Uh, Luke is my favorite of all the four Gospels, by the way. I, you know, they always say you, you can't have your kids, you can't have a favorite kid. I don't believe that either. Um, I, think you, I think you love them in different seasons differently. Uh, so Luke is my favorite Gospel, and 19 is the shift where Jesus is heading towards the city. He's intentionally... He's intentionally living out his destiny. He knows that whatever's going to happen in the fullness of the kingdom of God, it's all going to go down in Jerusalem. So even though he's a country guy, even though he's from the sticks and he hangs out with all the Galileans who talk with an accent, 
he knows his future is intricately connected to Jerusalem. So he heads towards there, and this is one of the ways Luke describes this story uh, in verse 41. As Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. Uh, if you're a note taker, that is the Jewish concept of shalom right there. It doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It means the total well-being of planet Earth, of peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. So in, in theological categories, this is an apocalyptic reference. So there's the spiritual message of Jesus saying, how could you guys have missed? Like you had God right here in your flesh. Uh, but then there's the apocalyptic reference. And here, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I talked about this. Apocalypse works two ways. It is to expose what's happening in the near present or the kind of the near time. So in that sense, Jesus is talking about what event in Jerusalem's history, the destruction that's coming, right? So Jerusalem is going to be leveled in 69 or 70 AD. So that's the first piece of the apocalyptic reference. And then the second piece is what we would call Judgment Day or the new heavens and the new earth. Those are his references there. So even though he's from Nazareth, he's destined for Jerusalem. So let's just talk about Jerusalem for a second. And some of you, I mean this seriously, some of you know a lot more about Jerusalem than I do. So I want this to be a kind of an all play uh, crowdsourcing Wikipedia conversation, okay? Um, so we first, we know about Jerusalem's significance first in the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, because of what's called the Akedah, the sacrifice of Abraham uh, and his son in Genesis 22. Now, what mount did that take place on? There's no trap door if you get it wrong. Like, just go for it. What, what mount? Moriah. Moriah. So Jews believe, and I believe Muslims believe this too, but Jews and Christians believe that Mount Moriah forms the northern edge of the old city proper. So it's not like Jerusalem evolved a couple of hundred years before Jesus or even 500 years. Jews go back to their very identity, which for a Jew, Genesis 22 is one of the five most important texts in the whole of their Bible, the Akedah. It goes into the mystery of the heart of God, the will of God. Why would God ask this guy to sacrifice his son? But Mount Moriah forms that northern part of Old Jerusalem proper. In 1 Kings 14, this is really fascinating to me, uh, it says the Lord literally puts his name in the city of Jerusalem. And the word that they use for God there is not the generic word for God, Elohim, which you see in Genesis 1. It's that specific word that we talked about when we looked at Genesis 2 earlier in this class. It's Yahweh, the name that literally forms the human body. So the God who literally formed the human body is literally putting his name into this one holy, unique city. So in some ways, all the drama about Jerusalem, even today, politically, it's very understandable. Because the Old Testament to Revelation makes a big deal about the significance of this one particular place. In the first century, 
It had a population of about 80,000 to 150,000. Josephus must have been a preacher because he exaggerated it greatly. Um, you could be taxed. If you were a Jew, you, get, you had a double tax, so you were paying the temple tax, but then you were also paying the Roman tax. You could be taxed in total 50 to 70 percent. So occupy Jerusalem. You know, I don't, I don't know what the Tea Party expression would, that may be John the Baptist's whole thing. He may have been the first proto Tea Party person. Um, that was pretty good. Who, who, yeah, thank you. But you could be taxed from anywhere from 50 to 70 percent, um, which was very hard for Jesus's mother, for instance. Uh, in first century, in first century uh, sociological studies, uh, most sociologists who study Jerusalem, and there aren't a lot of them, but in the first century, they talk about the difference between Joseph and Mary. I'll just do this really quick. So Joseph is a Sadiq which means he's of the righteous class, which probably means something like what we mean when we say middle class. Uh, he was educated. He was not poor, but not rich. He was of a very small middle class that they had in the first century. And the word righteous, Sadiq is the Hebrew, shows up in Matthew chapter 1 when Matthew is having the moral dilemma of what to do with Mary. Matthew goes out of his way to say, but Joseph a Sadiq. It doesn't just mean he's a good man. It means he comes out of a particular class of people who study the Torah, who go to the temple, uh, who don't eat pork sandwiches. You know what I mean? Like they take their faith seriously. They don't just go to church at Christmas and Easter, right? Like they're there every Sunday, even Wednesday nights count if you're a Sadiq, right? Like that's how serious and intense. But Mary is from a, a, a part of the social class of the first century called the Anawim. The Anawim is a Hebrew word. It means pious poor. If you want to read more about this, uh, arguably the best American New Testament scholar we have right now is a guy named Scott McKnight. He lives in Chicago. Um, he preached here a year ago. Some of you will remember that. He's the guy who sounds like a Chicago Bears offensive coordinator, but he loves Jesus. Like that, that's <laughs> McKnight. McKnight has done a whole book on Mary's place in the first century kind of social structure. I think it's called The Real Mary or Discovering the Real Mary. And he talks about Mary being part of the pious poor. And one of the reasons Jesus cared about the poor so much, which regardless of who you are or your politics, you cannot deny Jesus' love for the poor. It's on every page of the Gospels. He argues that it's Mary who taught Jesus that. And Jesus watched his mother struggle, not just because of the scandal of being pregnant and not being married, but because she came from this poor class, she married a middle class guy, and then Jesus goes to be the champion of the people that Mary emerges out of. Now, a lot of the evidence has to do with the sacrifice that's required at the temple. If you're middle class, X, Y, and Z are required. If you're poor, is it two doves, Randall, that's required if you're poor at the temple? So a lot of it is the sacrificial system was weighted based on your economic prosperity. Okay. So taxes is a big deal because if you already don't have a lot and you're paying a lot of taxes, that's a big deal, right? If you're if you live in America and you pay 20 or you make $20,000 a year and you're or $30,000 a year and you're paying 30% tax, that's a big deal. So the temple proper then is the center or the apex and it's hard Randall had a great line this morning. It's hard to find good pictures of the temple. 
Are you with me? It's hard to find good pictures of the temple. Uh, so this is a recreation uh, of what it would look like. And by the way, if you go to Jerusalem, some of the recreations they have are just mind-blowing to experience. Um, so the te- uh, Josephus and then uh, even modern scholars like N.T. Wright, they describe the first century Jerusalem experience like this. You're coming over the hill like is described in Luke 19. And maybe you're from Nazareth. The first time maybe when Jesus is a boy and they're going to Jerusalem. And what you realize is Jerusalem is not just a city with a temple in it. Jerusalem is really technically, historically, a temple with a city built around it. So it's the first thing that you see. And it is the center of economics, politics, education, and government. So it's like if you took Wall Street, uh, the White House, and Harvard, and put them all together, and the Washington Cathedral, like the temple incorporates the whole totality of Jewish life. It's not like they had, they didn't have separation of church and state. Um, And we could have a really interesting conversation about that and the implications, but it was all wrapped up in the temple because... Jews are a minority in the Roman Empire. And when you're a minority, you look to have designated places where you can teach your children how not to lose their identity, right? Uh, My parents are here this weekend, and my middle son is singing Rocky Top at the top, top of his lungs yesterday at breakfast, right? And Scott's really happy about that, and Randall... Right. See, that's what my parents are thinking, right? Yeah, like, but what I'm saying is, okay, when you're from another place, but in a, in, a, in a place in which it's hard to keep an identity, and sports is just a silly way of exhibiting that, the temple becomes the place that Jews keep being Jews. Because in a sense, even though they're in their land, they're still in exile. And the reason they're in exile is because they don't get to run the show. They're puppets. They're being oppressed. They're being taxed. They're being told what to do. Herod is sacrificing pigs in the temple. He's killing their messiahs who came before Jesus. They're doing all this stuff. So the temple is the biggest deal possible to a Jew in the first century. We know from Luke 2 that Jesus was presented at the temple. We know through uh, explicit and implicit evidence in the Gospels that he visited often. He taught there. We know Paul and Peter teach in the temple courts in the book of Acts. Um, We know that right after this section in Luke 19, after he weeps over the city, which has the temple in the middle of it, we know that, uh, look in Luke 19, it says, every day Jesus was teaching, this is verse 47, every day when he went to Jerusalem, he was teaching in the temple. The priests, scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. So Jesus is going to essentially take on the biggest institution of his world. Do you remember this in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, you know what? He says it early in the Gospel of John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke it appears later, but in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, If you tear down the temple, what does he say? He's saying, if Wall Street falls, if the White House falls, he's going after the one sacred, visible institution that they had. And the reason he's doing this is first century Jews believe that the temple is the locus of God. This is the location where God dwells. So Jesus is not just making a political claim about how they're organizing themselves. He's making a theological claim 
something greater than the temple exists. He's saying it about himself. Uh, think about this. Look at 1 Corinthians. This is one of the places you see Paul really, really getting Jesus well, like interpreting Jesus well. But in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, and we kind of skip over this because we think it means don't have sex or don't eat too much ice cream. But think about, uh, think about what, I mean, don't have sex if you're not married. If you're married, have lots of sex. I just want to clear that up, okay? If you were in first service, you'll appreciate that more. <laughs> If you were thinking about skipping second service, now you'll want to come. Okay, first, <laughs> first Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which of you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Or if you go back three chapters in three sixteen, do you not know that you are God's temple? that you are God's spirit and it dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. I'm convinced one of the reasons so many professional athletes become Christians is because of this temple theology. They know how important their bodies are to being deeply spiritual people. So when Jesus says something greater than the temple is here, um, it's reason 77 they wanted to kill him. You got, he's saying, you guys who study the Bible, you think God just lives in this church building, but what I'm saying is God has moved on, and God is now in this thing I'm calling the kingdom. And after his death, death and resurrection in Pentecost, when the church is empowered with the Holy Spirit, now he's saying God has hundreds and thousands and millions and even two billion little temples on planet Earth. So you have creation, which is God's first temple, right? And then you have all these miniature expressions of God's present resident or residing in the bodies um, of humans. Once again, God calling to affirm this great, <laughs> this great teaching that I'm giving. Okay, so let's talk about Jerusalem now. Uh, we are interested in Jerusalem now because Revelation teaches that there is a new Jerusalem coming. I'm having a hard time with Lucas right now, who has kind of, and it's, I get it, but he has this very kind of Greek view of heaven. He keeps talking about heaven as up there, out there, um, and it's because of the songs that we sing. And I, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to make a huge deal of it because he is in first grade after all, but I am trying to suggest to him that the reason we care about Jerusalem today um, is because somehow the Jerusalem we know today, somehow, it's connected to the new Jerusalem that's coming, the heavenly city, the merger of heaven and earth. So we care about Jerusalem now because somehow it is connected. We don't know how. A lot of people think they know how. We don't know for sure how it's connected. Um, interestingly, the reason the Temple Mount is important to Muslims today is because that is the site uh, in their faith of the ascension of Muhammad. Right, Randall? Did I get that right? Okay, so here... Yeah, and a, ma and, a, and a magic horse. But don't be too hard because we believe in resurrection. So don't, don't be too hard on them. Um, so this is the Dome of the Rock. Technically, it's not a mosque. It's uh, more of a holy site. It's really now, in a great twist of irony, it's the first thing you see. And most people who see pictures of Jerusalem, they assume that that's a Jewish or Christian site, and it's not. It's a Muslim site. Um, 
I, I've respected Randall's uh, deference to get in into politics. One, one thing that we discovered when we were in Israel, and by the way, whatever your politics are in Israel, until you go, you don't realize how complicated it is. So you could be really far right, and if you go to uh, Israel for two weeks, it's going to mess with you. If you're really far left, it's going to mess with you. Like whatever your politics are, the on-the-ground reality of the situation will totally mess with whatever you think, um, which is always fun to be on the back of the bus and watching that happening to people <laughs> and then say, I told you so. I told you that was going to happen. But when you see the Dome of the Rock, uh, you're kind of reminded that Jerusalem is 60% Jewish, 40% Muslim. Now, in 1968, Israel took the Temple Mount back. The Temple Mount is kind of the original outline or structure of where the original Davidic Solomon Temple is. Uh, well, at least roughly speaking. Now, this is not provable, but this was discussed among our guides um, and, and some of the, uh, the rabbis or, and, and even the Fellowship Bible Senior Pastor. There is a story that in 1968, when Israel had the temple, 67? Sorry, 68 is year the Tigers won the World Series. I always get that mixed up. Okay. You know, 67, 68. Um, in 67, Israel has the Temple Mount. Now, this is significant for Jews because Christians did not invent the idea of the Messiah, right? That's their story. So Jews are still looking for the Messiah to come the first time. The difference is we believe he's already come once and he's coming again. So we're like 80% similar. We just disagree on the, on the timing of it, right? So if we're right and Jesus is the Messiah, which I believe, then in one harmonious moment, all of Israel is going to go, oh, you were right about this. Now you were wrong about this and this and this. Okay, but you were right about this. Um, the rabbis told the nation of Israel, the, the government leaders, you cannot take the temple by force. You have to give it back. Because if the temple is taken by force, the blood of the innocent, the, the shed blood of those who are innocent will negate the whole purpose of Israel having a temple again. So this is a huge fighting point among the, the intensely devout, especially the male uh, Jewish leaders in Israel, who, and there's some of them are split on this, but we're deeply offended that in 67, Israel has the Temple Mount. They literally have it, and they can rebuild the Temple, which is supposed to be the ushering of the New Age, the Messiah, and everything that Orthodox Jews believe around the world. But the rabbis told the government officials, you can't take it by force. And so they gave it back. Now, Israel is just as divided between secularism and religious fervor as the United States is. There's, there's a bunch of secular people in Israel, and there's a bunch of religious people. There's a bunch of secular Jews, and there's a bunch of secular Muslims. There's a bunch of devout Jews, a bunch of devout Muslims. So there is great disagreement on that particular historical point. But there is one strand of interpretation which says... Because you've got to answer the question, why did they not give it back? You can say, well, the UN forced them to or government pressure or whatever. But there is a strand of thought that says it was the rabbis who told them to give it back. And so the Dome of the Rock there is, for many devout Jews, the ultimate trash talk. It's the ultimate slap in the face. 
Uh, the only way we could equate it is if you built a mosque on top of the White House today for an American, like with taking out the religious component, but the, the national identity component. If you put a mosque on top of the White House today, how do you think that would go? Right? Probably wouldn't go very well. Um, so you can imagine, anytime we think our politics are crazy, just read Israeli papers for a while and you'll feel really good about what's happening in the United States. It's controlled by the Jordanians. The Jordanians police it. Police it. Uh, Gentile, we Christians can go. Um, I've, I, we didn't go. Yeah, women have to, you have to cover your head. Just, but just like we have to cover our head when we go to the Wailing Wall, out of respect. I think you have to cover your head. We didn't go. Did you go the first time up? So you have not been in the. Steve, do you want to say anything about that experience? Dome of the Rock. Well, it's incredible because uh, it, it, when you go into the Dome of the Rock, there's this huge rock about the size of this room. That is the rock, and that's where the traditional place where Abraham nearly sacrificed right. Isaac and everything. That is the place, and uh, it's just there's an iron fence around it. And in those days, you could just walk right around the fence and look at it. And it's very Incredible. It kind of. No, of course, yeah. See, see, this part was uh, there's a, a deep valley that goes all the way around. It's about it, it's much higher now than it used to be, and so there's a deep valley that went this way. There was a deep valley. It's all filled in now, all the way around, and so the old city of David was about right here. <laughs> the wall probably came up behind Extended the dome of the rock and came back around in here. And so that is all. And when Herod came, he terraced this whole thing. He made this whole thing 13 acres right around in here. And he, uh, he terraced all this up. You, you see this place right here? Uh, that's called the pinnacle of the temple. Remember, they threw James off the pinnacle of the temple right here. And it's much higher in those days because this valley came around here. And mm. so where's the weak point? It's over here. That's how the Romans got the city. By the way, if you think Brentwood property is expensive, like <laughs> all right, this is some of the most expensive property in, in the world. Um, okay, so, Josh? yeah. Um, Randy and I were there two years ago, mm-hmm. and um, they, they wouldn't let the Gentiles into... Dome of the Rock? Yeah, we and I was really disappointed because I was hoping to get to see it, but we didn't get to. But you can wander across, you know. The plaza. Yeah, and um, you don't have to wear a burqa or a hijab to walk around it, but a husband cannot touch his wife. The morality police will come and break you up. And if you take a picture. You mean like you can't hold hands or you can't know? A husband couldn't put his arm around his wife when, and shoot pictures. In fact, the morality police took the phones of anyone where a man and a woman were pictured together and made them erase it. Hmm. So that was just two, and two Christmases ago. And you can, ju- you can add to this, Randall, but one of the reasons that the Dome of the Rock is so offensive, especially to Jewish and Christian archaeologists, is they're now using that space and going way down 
where original remnants, uh, what, what we think are remnants of the temple, uh, and they're just at night kind of taking all this stuff that archaeologists want to get their hands on. So um, it's, as you can imagine, if they had Thanksgiving in Israel, they would be arguing about Dome of the Rock, but they don't celebrate Thanksgiving like we do. Yeah. Oh, just one other thing. They only let Christians go between 7.30 in the morning and 10.30 in the morning. So it's a tight, tight window. I just felt lucky to to get to be around. In yeah. there. I, I was so overwhelmed. I had no idea it was so huge. Yeah. You know, because we see it like a picture. Yeah. And it looks real small. But yeah. no, it's huge. Yes, sir. <clears throat> just a quick question. I had heard that Muslims think that Ishmael was yeah. in Isaac's place. Yeah. 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 It'd be fun. There's a whole lineage of how the Isaac Ishmael is interpreted <coughs> essentially starting in the 6th century because you don't have Muslims before that, but 600 years after Jesus going back. Yeah. Okay, so let me pivot for a second. One of the things that I was convicted of after being in Jerusalem is how important cities are. Um, <laughs> And I talked about this in the sermon series we did several months ago about Jerusalem. But Tim Keller is a preacher in New York City. In my opinion, he's one of the most interesting. They're doing, he's a preacher for Redeemer Presbyterian. And here's what he says about cities. He's not from New York, but he has planted churches all over New York, specifically Manhattan. He says, speaking of cities, he says, 40 years ago, less than 3% of the world's population lived in cities. Today, 8 million people make the move to a city every two months. If churches want to reach young adults, business leaders, cultural influencers, and the poor, they have to be in the cities. That is where so many of them are living. I think it's now that 50% of America lives in a urban or a suburban context. The most unreached people in the world usually go to cities. You can see this in Africa right now where they have super cities forming 20, 30 million people, like in Lagos. When people immigrate to cities, they are breaking their kinship ties, they're in a more pluralistic environment, and they are far more open to the gospel than they ever would have been in their previous habitat. Which got me thinking about Nashville. Over a million people live here. We know the New York Times called Nashville America's It City. Uh, it's a good time to be a realtor in Nashville right now, right? Because people are coming here from all over. Most of us have seen our property values gone up significantly, and we're paying for it with traffic, but it's, I think it's a good trade. Um, half, it was, uh, a, group, a local Christian group here recently estimated that half of Nashville, this is almost impossible to believe in the, in the belt buckle of the Bible book, but half of Nashville doesn't have a church or a synagogue they're committed to. Half. So even in one of the most religious cities in North America, half of the people here are not connected to a faith community. And if we believe that the image of God is in every person, then percentage-wise or per capita, cities have more of the image of God in it than any other part of the world. So here's what I wrote in my journal, and I shared this uh, two months ago with Otter Creek. But this, I don't journal very much. I've tried, and it just I'm not a journaler. I don't know what that says about me. But I did journal my trip to Israel, and this is what I wrote. 
This is my first time in Jerusalem, the city where Jesus' death and resurrection changed the entire trajectory of humankind. Religion will not perish. Islam, Christianity, and Judaism are not going anywhere, despite what secularists say. And this is because as humans, we are inherently social. We need story. We need conversation. We need lament. We need to know how we got here. We need humor, hope, ritual, despair, forgiveness, and imagination. We all need these expressions to make sense of our lives. Religion is as old as Eden. It's as young as an infant. It's it's as mysterious as love. It's as necessary as water. Religion is here to stay because we are still here. Our religion is Jesus. Um, So I don't have a big aha because I'm still thinking about the marriage series I'm doing. (laughs) I started this morning. Um, but one of the, I will say this, one of the things I love about Otter Creek's history, even when Otter Creek moved from technically being in Nashville proper to Brentwood, um, is Otter Creek from its very beginning has had at least one eye towards Nashville. And it's easy in Brentwood, and I know we don't all live in Brentwood, I live in Nolensville, as one of my friends calls it, the mean streets of Nolensville. Um, but one of the things that's beautiful about Otter Creek is that we do care and we are invested on what's happening in our city. And I think one of the ways that we're faithful to our Jesus who was crucified in Jerusalem, okay, technically the hill was right outside of Jerusalem proper, but I think one of the ways that we're faithful to Jesus who was killed in the city is to be passionate about the ones he cried for in Luke 19. When he comes over the hill, he's not scourging them, right? His heart's deeply broken. It's not in judgment says he wept because they didn't see the possibilities of, of what they had right in front of them. And I, that's my prayer that our posture would not be so much judgment towards our city, although there are times to judge, but that it would be a heart of, oh, Nashville, do you see what we could be? Do you see, and Detroit, Chicago, Atlanta, like to all of our cities, do you see what we could be if we took this thing Jesus called the kingdom of God seriously? One of the things people always ask me, why do you get involved in, one, one I get asked about all the time, Josh, why do you get involved in the conversations between Muslims and Christians? Part of it is it was reinforced when we were in Jerusalem um, that I believe Jesus knew how complex Jerusalem was going to become. And I think one of the reasons he, he calls us to be peacemakers and he calls us to be agents of reconciliation is he needs people in the cities that God loves to do the work that no one else wants to do. Because if we just leave it to the government, if we just leave it to the Kiwanis Club, if we just leave it to the YMCA, they will do good things, but they won't be kingdom things. And that's our unique opportunity as a church, is to explicitly do kingdom work in these cities. That's, that's the real practical application um, that I can see. What questions or thoughts do you have as the temperature gets to 99 degrees in this, in this classroom? Good night. Anybody want to talk about hell? <laughs> Randall's got some sermons on hell already. Okay, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
Um, by the way, is Amber here? Amber Jones, is she here? We prayed over Alex two weeks ago. His surgery went really well. If any of you know the Joneses, he had a stomach surgery, right? Uh, write him a note. That's a hard recovery back. Um, but they are doing well, and Amber is taking good care of Alex. Go in peace. Down with the Packers. Hey, good to meet you. I'm a military history. Yeah. And uh, it's the Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah. The movie. Uh, Saladin was a more righteous than someone else leader. So good. So good. In fact, I'm glad you said that. I meant to, I think I left this part of my notes in my office, but. Um, oh, I had a whole litany of all the wars and sieges that have happened in Jerusalem. I meant to to name that. I'm so glad you said that. But something like Jerusalem had been destroyed three times, sieged 35 times, fought over 52. Like, it's just this staggering. I'm really glad you said that. Thank you. Hey, thank you. You know what? You're talking about everybody moving to the city. I said, those small town guys riled up on this election. Oh, they did. No, they did. They did. And that, that is a... You know what blew my mind when I saw the... Um, I can't remember if it was Fox or CNN, but when I saw the final county breakdown, my first thought was, how in the world did Obama win two elections? I'm not even saying negative or positive yeah, yeah, about yeah, Obama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying... People live in the city. Yeah, but, but it flipped to Steve's point. Hillary got in those small towns. And hey, Wisconsin? Oh, yeah. Just like W. 85% of the evangelical. And he's not a good man. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. Hey, that,